Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are going to we're going to continue our study through the book of First Peter. We are in chapter three, and we're going to be looking at verses fifteen through twenty-two. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll get one to you right to your seat, so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 22 this morning. Peter writes, starting in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been, having been made subject to him. The title of my message this morning is Being Conscious of Your Conscience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come into this place freely, Lord, and And to know the Holy Spirit, you are here to instruct us, to give us not only information from your word, but application in our life that would change us and make us more like you and draw us closer into our relationship with you. Father, I do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, that they would come to know you this morning as Lord and as Savior. Lord, thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word. Thank you for our children downstairs being taught your word at this very moment as well, Lord. And and all things that we do this morning, we, we want you to be glorified. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been said that a conscience is what hurts when all other parts feel good. It's also been said a conscience is a dog that cannot bite but never stops barking. And finally, I've also heard it said, single men have consciences, married men have wives. (laughs) Take that one for what it's worth. (laughs) Being conscious of your conscience is what Peter's talking about here. Now we all know what follows these words. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and... Always let your conscience be your guide. The famous last words of Jiminy Cricket. Always let your conscience be your guide. But that can be dangerous because our conscience can easily become controlled by sin. It can become controlled by our old nature. That is why Peter tells us here that we're to have in verse 16 a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. We certainly are seeing today those that are in the world defaming, trying to defile us as evildoers. You know, saying things, oh, you Christians, and you're this way, and you're that way. 
Uh, and that is why it's even more important for us that we have a good conscience. Because our, our testimony is on the line. I mean, think about this. Say you get into an argument with a clerk at Walmart or something and, and, and voices start to raise and all of a sudden the manager comes over and there's this little conflict going on and then a crowd starts to gather and then they're all taking their cell phones out and they're all taking videos of what's going on here. And the next thing you know, that little altercation is posted all over the Internet, 10,000 views on YouTube. You're now a celebrity, but not in a good way. At that point, how effective of a witness for Christ are you? That's why Paul, the apostle, tells us in Colossians 4, verse 5, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Listen, we are the only church that non-believers are going to see. And we're not only to be kind to them, but our ultimate goal is to see them come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in so doing, we need to be careful when it comes to our witness. Watch what we say. Watch what we do. How we conduct ourselves. And make sure that we are walking uh, with a good conscience. Because if you remember from our last study together, Peter was writing to Christians who were experiencing tough times, difficult times, difficult days. They were brought before those in authority. They were persecuted, falsely accused for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if they were caught up in certain things that their conscience had been warning them were wrong, but they didn't listen, their witness would be tarnished. So that's why Peter is advising them, even in those dark days, they were to shine as lights. Verse 15, Peter said, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In other words, uh, set your life apart for the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord, focused on Him, look to Him. Why? Because He's our hope. He's our hope. And those in this world, they really have no hope. I mean, they look at the world and they see, as we all see, the inflation, the, the economic crisis, you know, gas prices just going up and up. They look at the war in Ukraine and, and in Russia and the threat of global war. And many of the world's mind, the non-believers, they're fearful, they're afraid. But to the Christian, to we as believers, none of those things should cause anxiety or fear. Why? Because we have hope. We have a Savior. That's Peter's message. We have hope. And because we have hope, we should set the Lord God apart in our hearts and to be ready with a clear conscience to give an answer to anyone who asks about that hope that we have within us. But listen, if my conscience is bugging me, if there's something going on in my life that's hanging over my head that I haven't dealt with, it's going to have a huge effect on my witness for Christ. Instead of sharing my faith, I'm going to be keeping my mouth shut because my conscience is bugging me. It's like, oh man, how, how can I say something because then I've got to deal with this and I should have dealt with that and I haven't dealt with this. And, and so you're, you're quiet and it affects you. And you, you can become anxious and you can become, you can become fearful. And I certainly wouldn't be the witness that God has called me to be. So this morning, I want to take a look at what the Bible tells us concerning our conscience and how we need to be conscious of our conscience. If you're taking notes, we're going, to look at, we're going to break it down like this. I'll give you, number one, three things that can happen to our consciences when we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work. And three things, point number two, that can happen to our consciences when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. There's Mark Twain who said, the conscience is like a hair in the mouth. You need to deal with it. Now, there's a, a big difference between being conscious and having a conscience. 
Being conscious is what we all start out in the morning here at service, and hopefully at the end of service we're not all unconscious. You know, I, I don't know. But uh, to be conscious simply means you're awake, you're aware. Maybe you've experienced this before. It's in the middle of the night, and you're sound asleep, and all of a sudden there's this huge blasting sound of thunder that just rattles the whole house. Man, you're awake. You're jolted. You're wide awake. You're conscious. You're now aware of the thunder and lightning and hail and rain. You're listening to hear if the tornado horns are going off. That's how our conscious works, you know, to make us awake and aware of what is right and what is wrong and going on in our world today and in our lives personally. You know, another way to look at this is, is in our driving. You know, you may be going down the road listening to music, just enjoying it, or having a conversation, you know, with your wife and kind of going with the flow of traffic until your wife says, Honey, slow down. Look how fast you're going. And you go, oh, whoa, you know, and you don't realize that. But then there's times where you're running late and you're totally aware how fast you're going. And at that point, my conscience is telling me to slow down instead of my wife. Why? Because I know that I'm in the wrong. But it's at that point that I now have a choice. Since I'm breaking the law, do I slow down or do I rationalize what I'm doing? Oh, come on, who drives this speed limit anymore? Yeah, you know, I'm just going with the flow. Do you say, well, it's, it's only illegal if you get caught? <laughs> now, you, you, you may laugh, but what is your conscience telling you? See, conscience is being aware and being awake, whereas having a conscience is being aware and awake to what is right and what is wrong and doing something about it. Now, listen, God has built into every man, every woman, a conscience. We're told that. Book of Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Listen to this in the New Living Translation. Even Gentiles, non-believers, who do not have God's written law, show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. Paul says, even if they're an unbeliever, their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them when they're doing right. So whether you're a believer or not, it's built in us to know right from wrong. It's embedded in our DNA, our very makeup as humans. No animal species has that characteristic. We have that conscience, this innate sense that there is a right and a wrong because we were created in the image of God. That's what the conscience is. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us there in Romans 2 that we are without excuse. The point is that, that our conscience has been placed there by the Lord. We have a choice whether we can listen to it or ignore it. It's kind of like the warning light that go on your car. You know, you get that, that, that check engine light that comes on. You can just ignore it. No, I don't need to worry about that. Or, I mean, you should do what it says. Get it into the mechanic. Years ago, I had a, a, a Nissan 280DX. So I bought it. It was about 10 years old, but it was, it was a cool car. I liked this car. It was fast. I had to sell it because it was too fast, but no, I didn't. I had to make that choice again, you know. But, you know, the, the car had this feature that this nice lady's voice would come on and say, low on fuel, really sweet and nice, or, or left door is open, right door is open, you know. And, oh, that's really nice. Or I read a story about a man who had a car like that, and the voice came on and said, low on fuel. But he looked at the gauge, and the gauge said he still had half a tank. So I thought, I can go another 50 miles. A few minutes later, the voice came on again. Fuel level is low. Fill up immediately. By, by that time, he's annoyed. 
And he, he's frustrated, so he, he reaches under the dash and he unplugs the wires. Man, that'll shut this thing up. A few minutes later, guess what happened? <laughs> he ran out of gas. See, the problem was in the gauges. The gauges were wrong. In the same way, people have problems today because they ignore that voice inside of them and they're looking at the gauges that the world puts up that are wrong. Messages that the world sends out on what marriage should be like. Messages that the world sends out about the different genders that we have. Messages that the world sends out on the life of a baby. Listen, there's only one gauge, one standard, and that gauge is right, and that is the Bible. The Bible says marriage is between one man and one woman, period. The Bible says there's only two genders, male and female. The Bible says abortion is murder and breaks God's commandments and God's heart. In other words, your conscience is designed to match up to what God's Word says according to what is right and what is wrong. God designed it that way. So you may say, well, what's the difference between the Holy Spirit and our conscience? Well, actually, the two, they work hand in hand. Think of it this way. My conscience is the voice of the car that says check engine. It's a check engine light. So you go to the mechanic and he says, well, here's the problem uh, here's the way to fix it. And, and, he's, and he's so uh, he takes that in the mechanic's book. And the Holy Spirit is the mechanic. And he uses the Word of God to convict you and to tell you what your conscience was already telling you was right and wrong in the first place. For example, when your conscience tells you that, that the words that you just spoke out of your mouth, maybe they were mean-spirited. Maybe they were hurtful. Not something that you should say. The Holy Spirit then brings to your remembrance, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Your conscience and the conviction of the Holy Spirit working at the same time. Holy Spirit's the mechanic who uses the word of God to confirm what your conscience is already telling you is wrong. See, our conscience tells us what's not, what is not right, but it, it does not tell us what is right. We're taught by God's word what is right the Holy Spirit. Now this brings us really to our first point and what I want to point out here is three things that can happen to our consciousness if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work within us. We can see three things, a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, and a poison or evil conscience. First off, a defiled conscience. Listen to Titus chapter 1 verse 15. Paul puts it this way. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. One person put it this way, a conscience is like an alarm clock that goes off and a defiled conscience is like putting a pillow over our ears so we don't hear the alarm clock. That word defiled there speaks of a, a window that doesn't get washed. Eventually that, that, that window gets dirtier and dirtier and, and, and until there's just filth, there's a layer of filth over it and you know, it's a, if it's on your car, the kids will write, wash me on it or something like that. And you can't see through it anymore. And that's a great illustration of what happens if I expose my mind to sin. My conscience becomes dirtier and dirtier, allowing less and less light to break through. Bible study becomes increasingly difficult, and my heart feels heavy and dark. That's what happens to our conscience when we ignore it. It becomes defiled. This film, you know, this layer uh, develops over our hearts, so, so we don't see things as clearly as we once did. Things which at one time were so clearly black and white are suddenly gray and the Lord's light and love doesn't shine brightly as it once did in our lives. There's this darkening effect that takes place in our walk. 
So this defiled conscience that then leads to the next description that the Bible gives us when we ignore conscience is that we can have a seared conscience. Paul, again, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, says that there were those speaking lies and hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So a seared conscience speaks of moving from the place of being not only past seeing clearly, but now you're past feeling. When your conscience is seared, you don't even feel conviction about the things that you once were convicted over. The, the film now on that glass is like a big sheet of ice. Like, you know, when the, you know, it's really cold at night and you get up in the morning and your car was parked on the street and you've got to get to work and there's this thick thing of ice on your windshield and you're going, oh man, ice scraper doesn't even get it off. We know that, what it's like. A seared conscience can be the same way. Things that, that 10 years ago you would have said no way to are things that you're now doing that you don't even think about. Oh, it's no big deal. Maybe it's movies, you know, uh, that you never would have watched when you first came to Christ. Oh, I'm that, you know, that doesn't please the Lord. You know, they're filled with bad language and violence. Now you're going, well, it's not that bad. You know, it's PG-13. It's not that bad. <laughs> PG-13 is like R, you know, 10 years ago. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's gambling. Things you never would have done when you first came to the Lord. What happened? Your conscience has been seared. You got to the point of being past feeling. No more conviction in your life at all. You know, Samson, he's a classic example of someone with a seared conscience. Remember, Samson was no dummy. He wasn't all brawn and no brain. He was a smart, smart guy. Uh, but, but his downfall was when he allowed his conscience to be seared. I mean, his life, understand, was to be consecrated to God. He took a Nazarite vow. That meant that he was to, to abstain from the fruit of the vine, which was not only alcohol, but grape juice, grapes, raisins. Uh, a person who took a Nazarite vow, they were not to cut their hair at all, uh, uh, you know, and you were not to be defiled by touching a, a corpse, a, a dead body. Samson didn't do very well in keeping that vow. Because we read that Delilah just kept pestering him and pestering him about his source of strength. And each time, Samson would get a little closer and a little closer and a little more compromised to telling Delilah the truth. Well, if you tie my hands with new ropes, and then, then, then that's the source of my strength. Well, that didn't work. Well, okay, well, uh, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom, that's the source of my strength. Give me dreadlocks. Yeah, that didn't work. Okay, he says, finally, okay. If you cut my hair, then I could be destroyed. You think, how could he say something so dumb? His conscience became seared. But it all started with just a little bit of compromise. Oh, it's no big deal. Uh, what's it going to hurt? You know, what if I tell it? Just this one time, I can handle it. It's not going to affect me. All the while, his conscience is going, don't do it. Don't do it. It's wrong. It's not good. But see, if your conscience is seared, you're not going to listen to it. And that leads to the third phase uh, of, of, a, of a conscience. It, it, you know, if you ignore a conscience, it just, uh, becomes a poison, evil conscience. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That phrase, evil conscience, can also mean poisoned or or perverted. See, once that person moves from that place where their conscience has become defiled, things are cloudy, it's gotten a little worse, now it's seared, you know, it, 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 the past feeling to the point now, I mean, it's gone. There's it, it, perversion, it, it, it's poison. 
You know, God speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where people call good evil and evil good. Isaiah 5, 20, the Lord says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. A person with an evil conscience or a poison conscience will live lives marked by perverse things, ungodly things, immoral things, and not think twice about it. Which is exactly why Paul in Romans chapter 1 says these people, these men and women, they're without an excuse. Because God built into them the difference to know between right and wrong. But we're seeing this currently in our society. You know, sadly, we see it in social media where someone you once knew had a walk with the Lord and they were coming to church. Now they're posting things on social media that, that, that shouldn't be a part of any Christian's life. And you can tell they've totally walked away from the Lord. What happened? They have a poisoned conscience. Sadly, some have, have completely walked away from the Lord, even denying His existence. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, and I think it really fits. I am persuaded that men think there is no God because they wish there were none. They find it hard to believe in God and go on in sin, so they try to get an easy conscience by denying His existence. So true. So what can we do about it? Well, this brings us to point number two in being conscious of our conscience. Three things that can happen to our conscience if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Because sometimes there is a problem with our conscience. Because there are times that we do blow it. There are times that we have failed. And we have sinned because we're all sinners. And, and there's those times your conscience really works overtime. Now, not only that, the Bible describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren. He always wants to bring up our past failings. You know, and, and although we're not compromised or ignoring the voice of our conscience now as it relates to sin, you can still be crippled uh, by your conscience because of your past. Something that you did in your past. Maybe, maybe even before you came to the Lord. So how do we deal with that? Well, first off, remember 1 John 3.20. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You can take that word heart out and replace it with conscience. If our, our conscience condemns us, understand that, that, that God is greater than our hearts and He knows all things. But then we must realize and, and we must do three things. Number one, we must understand that it's not what I do, but it's what Jesus did for us. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I love that. Christ suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust. That was us. We were the unjust. He was the just. The purpose of the cross, to put away our sin, the sin that separated us from God. The effect of sin is always, always alienation from God. See, God created us in the beginning to have fellowship with Him. He wanted us to be one with Him, but a pure and holy, righteous God cannot be a part of sin. It's inconsistent with the nature of God. And because man fell into sin, the result of that is that lost fellowship with God. The purposes of God were thwarted because of man's sin. So in order that man might have fellowship with God, in order for that purpose to be restored, Jesus suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, as Peter says here, that he might bring us back into that relationship with God to wash us clean of our sin in order that we might have the purposes of God accomplished in our life as we fellowship with Him. So 
So Peter's saying, you don't have to be haunted by your past failures. You don't have to live in guilt because of things gone on in your past, even though Satan is really good at reminding us of those times. Peter says, Jesus took care of it. When Jesus suffered on the cross, did he suffer only for the sins we committed before we were saved? No. He suffered for all of our sins. He took our place before we were even born. He took it all, past, present, and future sins. He paid the price completely. When he cried out from the cross, it is finished. That's what he meant, paid in full. So as we repent of our sin, we understand Jesus paid the bill for our sins completely. So the life that, that I now live, I live justified in Christ, just as if I've never sinned, just as if I've never done anything wrong. That means I can have a good, clean conscience if I understand what Jesus did for me at the cross. He paid the price completely. All of my sins were nailed to the cross. I'm forgiven, they're forgotten. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 12. He says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So if the Lord chooses to forgive you, you've repented of it, then what are you doing bringing those sins up again. Stop. He's forgiven you. He's put it in the past, so let it go. Listen, by holding on to the guilt, you're not believing the the forgiveness that, that Jesus paid for you, for the price for. And ultimately, you're just punishing yourself for no reason at all by not believing what God said. A lot of people today, they're hung up by guilt, and rightfully so, because people feel guilty because they are guilty. We're all sinners. But the answer isn't to go to, to, through some psychoanalysis and numerous counseling sessions and pay thousands of dollars in trying to work through your guilt. You don't need to do that. Just look to Jesus and believe what the Bible says, that Christ suffered once for your sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He paid the price. Believe his word. You do that, that guilt is removed. Look to Jesus. See him dying upon the cross, paying the price for your sin, that specific sin that maybe you're haunted by today, and realize that the debt has been paid in full. This leads us to the second thing that can happen to our conscience if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, is to realize it's not who I am, but where I am that matters. Look at verses 19 through 21. By whom also we went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let me say this. Verses 19 through 21 are some of the most difficult verses in all the Bible. They're two of the most debated verses in the New Testament. So, verse 22. No, <laughs> We'll, we'll cover them. <laughs> Let me give you the best understanding I have of these verses. I don't know for sure. But that's okay. Because these verses aren't given to us for issues of doctrine. Rather, they're matters of principles that are given to us for the purpose of an illustration. Let me say that again. It's not for doctrine, but for an illustration. Now, with that said, there are two trains of thought to two things in these verses that, that bring confusion with, with two different answers. The question is, what did Jesus preach and who did Jesus preach to? 
Again, verse 19, we read, He went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Now, this word for preached here, it's interesting because it's a different word that's most commonly used for the word preach. Uh, That word means to present the gospel. This word simply means to proclaim truth. So there's two ways that I've found to understand this. Number one, there are those that say that these verses are speaking of Christ openly proclaiming his victory over the spirits in prison there in verse 19. And these are the demonic spirits who were behind all the corruption that went on in the world prior to the flood. And we'll look at more of that when we get into 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. But here we read that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. In other words, he proclaimed final victory over all principalities and powers. No longer will they have control over man. God's spirit will now dwell within people in power and in strength. That's one view. That's a good view. Another view, just as good as looking at it in this context, Peter's been talking about the finished work of the cross. What Christ did for us upon the cross, how our sins have been forgiven. Then Peter takes it a step further. We are safe in Christ. Once our sins have been forgiven through what Jesus did on the cross, we are now placed in Him. We are protected. We are safe just as Noah was in the ark, just like those who died before Christ rose from the dead were safe. Listen, what we do know is this. Prior to the resurrection, there's a, the place called Hades was divided into two compartments. So according to Luke chapter 16, the story of Lazarus and, 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 and the rich man, one side was called Abraham's bosom uh, or paradise. And it, it's a place that, 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 that those that believed in God prior to Jesus' time on the earth, those that sought to live their life for God, Those that died in faith, that's where they hung out. They were in this place uh, uh, of waiting, so to speak. And on the other side of this place, in Hades, the other compartment, was a place of torment. Those that didn't follow after God, that didn't love, love God. Remember the rich man when he was down in Hades in that place of torment. In Luke chapter 16, verse 24, he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So the two compartments. Now what is interesting is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, after Jesus died upon the cross. It says there that when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean by that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now that's not saying that the false teaching going around that that Jesus went to hell and suffered in hell, that, that was not what this is saying. I believe what the Bible is teaching is that Jesus descended into Hades, into that place where the the paradise is out of Abraham's bosom, and and, and brought those people there in paradise into the presence of God. Because Paul would write to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. So they were taken from that place, Noah and and David and Samuel and and all that that died in, in faith before Christ, from Adam to the thief on the cross, were taken out of Hades, gone into heaven, where Jesus descended, leading captivity captive. Every one of them brought into the presence of God, their faith finally being fulfilled. That's why today paradise is no longer described as being in the lower parts of the earth. Today it's described as being in heaven. Paul spoke to the Corinthians about how he was caught up to, into paradise in the Second Corinthians 
uh, chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that's a, the second understanding of these verses. Either way, I think the illustration is clear, even if the doctrine isn't. I can have a clear conscience, even though I have a shady past, because I've been placed in Christ. I'm protected by him, just like Noah was protected in the ark. And Peter says in verse 20, like the ark that was prepared, in which few that even eight souls were saved through water. So too, because what Jesus Christ did on the cross, those that put their faith and trust in him are safe. God has prepared a place for us in heaven. Safe from the enemies, safe from the principalities and powers, and safe from God's judgment and wrath. This also tells me that I am protected from the accusations of the enemy as well. Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And again, well, I pointed out 1 John three twenty four: If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Now, one more passage that's misunderstood. Verse 21. Let's look at this one. There's also an anti-type which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand that when Peter makes mention of baptism saving us, he isn't talking about how water baptism is necessary for salvation. That's not true. It's not water baptism which saves us, but he says the answer of a good conscience towards God. Baptism is just simply an outward sign of an inward doing. Peter had not been talking about water baptism. He's been talking about Jesus' death. And he's making reference to Jesus' baptism into death. In fact, Jesus spoke of this himself in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. See, Jesus paved the way for us. Paul, in fact, even said he didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he didn't know if he baptized anybody except a couple of fellows named Crispus and Gaius. Now, I do believe that as a Christian, we are called to be baptized in water. I definitely believe in water baptism. Uh, I, I believe in, in baptism by full immersion. That, you know, it, it is a perfect picture of what happens to us in Christ. We go under the water. We're putting to death our old man. Putting dying to that old nature and rising up in that newness of life. Baptism is a beautiful picture of that. But, but baptism doesn't save you. It's a condition of your heart. Peter says baptism, he says, it's the answer of a good conscience towards God. When we were given the choice to repent of our sin and serve God, and we said, yes, Lord, I'm going to turn from my sin. That's an answer to the good conscience towards God. So we're back to the conscience again. It's, uh, it's not what I do, but what Jesus did. It's not who I am, but where I'm at that matters. And the third thing that can happen to our conscience, if we allow the Holy Spirit to work it's to realize it's where Christ is at presently. Look at verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. I think if you go through and, and take some time after service, maybe this afternoon, and read these verses again, I think it'll be really clear to, to you. Christ died. He was brought safely through death just like Noah's family was brought safely through the flood, and in the same way, we will be safely taken into heaven when it's our time. Until then, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in all power and authority, making intercession for us, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. 
Why is that? Well, because the enemy, our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, is there accusing us day and night, day and night but our Savior is there making an intercession for us. So, so he's accusing me. Oh, that Tom, look at Tom. Look what he did yesterday. Look what he did two days ago. And he calls himself a Christian, a pastor in old life. I mean, Tom's a... God says, yep, that's true. Jesus says, that's true. But he's one of mine, Father. I saved him. He committed his life to me. He's forgiven. How can you say that? All because Jesus rose again from the dead. His resurrection validates all he has said and all he's done. That means I'm safe. I'm secure in him. And he will see me safely home when it's time. Hebrews 4.14 reiterates this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This all goes back to where we started. Verse 15 and 16. Look at that again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So when you hear people's rumors about you, they defame your character, they call you names, say all sorts of evil things about you, you don't have to respond. You don't have to be worried because of your good conduct. You have a clear conscience. And so, until the Lord takes us home, we're to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, give a defense for the hope that we have, and have a good conscience. Finally, the question arises, how can I keep a pure conscience? Let me give you four ways, quick ways, and then we'll close. First, first and foremost, in order to keep a pure conscience, you have to confess and forsake all known sin. Examine your life. Examine your guilt feelings in light of the Word of God. Is there anything you are doing presently that Scripture warns you not to do? It was Martin Luther who said, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. The objective is to saturate our conscience with biblical teaching and educate our conscience so it's acting on proper information. We need to educate our conscience. So acknowledge all known sin. If there's something the Bible clearly teaches against, you need to stop doing it. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, Run from anything that simulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. So having identified what sin needs to be confessed, deal with it, you know, and turn from it. Secondly, ask forgiveness and be reconciled to anyone you have wronged, if possible. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.23, If you bring your gift to the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So seek reconciliation, if possible. I add two words of possible because sometimes it's not always possible. There are some people that are just going to want to stay mad at you. <laughs> and they may not have any cause at all for it. They just, they just don't like you anymore. And that's okay. As long as you've made every attempt possible to make things right. That you've gone to them and you said, Listen, I, I know I've offended you. I've done something wrong. You know, and I just want to tell you I'm sorry. You know, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But you have to do what God's called you to do and try to make it right. And then thirdly, uh, uh, in order to have a clear conscience, uh, to maintain a clear conscience, make restitution. Make restitution. And this is an Old Testament principle. Numbers chapter 5, the Lord says, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, man or woman, betray the Lord by doing wrong to another person, they are guilty. 
they must confess their sin and make full restitution for what they've done, adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person who was wronged. I like that. Then there might be those that say, well, you know, uh, that's the book of Numbers. That's Old Testament stuff. That was given to the Israelites. We're no longer under the law. Haven't you heard? We're in the New Testament. We're under grace now, which is their way of saying, yeah, I ripped that person off, but I don't want to pay them back. Listen, restitution is not merely an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament one as well. Remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector? We little man, we little man was he. For those of you that have taught Sunday school, you know the song. You know, he's up in the tree looking at Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to have dinner with you. So Jesus comes down, and, and basically, you know, they spend some time together, and Zacchaeus puts his faith in the Lord. And said to the Lord these words, Look, Lord, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'm going to restore it fourfold. Jesus didn't say, Oh, no, you're going overboard. You've gone too far. Just, just you know, you don't go overboard. No. What did Jesus say? He said, Today salvation has come to the house because he's also the son of Abraham. Loose paraphrase, it sounds like a conversion to me, and he wants to make restitution. He wants to make things right. What do I mean by restitution? Let me put it simply. If you stole something from someone, give it back to them. <laughs> well, what if I stole it and sold it? Well, buy a new one and then give them the new one, you know? Maybe you've gone out and slandered someone. You said some untrue things about them and God's Holy Spirit has convicted you. And you say, well, I told them, I'm sorry. Good, that's great. Now, how about going to the people that you, you said things to and tell them I was wrong, I gave you false information, here's the truth. With as much as you possibly can, Try to undo the wrong that you have done. It's not always possible. But you should try and go and, and, and make restitution. It's really what, what it means to repent. God wants all of us to have a clear conscience. And finally, the fourth thing you can do to, to maintain a clear conscience is don't procrastinate. Don't put it off in clearing your conscience. In other words, if God is showing you that something is wrong, don't say, well, yeah, I know I need to deal with it uh, tomorrow. Some people think they can just keep putting off the guilt and putting off the guilt thinking that, that somehow their conscience is just going to clean itself in time. It won't. I've shared this story before. It's like about the man who wrote the following letter to the IRS. He says, I've been un- unable to sleep knowing that I have cheated on my income tax. I have enclosed a check for $150. If I still can't sleep, I will send the rest. Another example of this, I think of Joseph's brothers after selling Joseph into slavery. Their unconfessed sin ate at them and ate at them week after week, month after month, year after year, for 20 years, until finally they confessed it. See, guilt was not the problem. The unconfessed sin was the problem. But when they finally confessed it to Joseph, the guilt went away. Paul, the apostle, said he always did his best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. That should be our objective as well. Maybe God has spoken to you this morning. Maybe your conscience has been troubling you lately because you know you've done something wrong that you should not have done. Instead of trying to to put it to one side, instead of ignoring it, you need to listen to it and examine it in light of the Word of God. Is there something you have done that, 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 that God is just awakening you to so that you can acknowledge it and repent from it, turn from it. Maybe as a believer you've crossed the line. You've done some things that you know that are wrong. Maybe you're actively involved in some practice or lifestyle you know is sin uh, and, and before God and your conscience has been troubling you. And you keep ignoring it, ignoring it, thinking that it's just going to go away. 
Listen, the warning lights are on. That's the good news. The bad news is when you can't, you don't, don't feel bad. And you don't feel and there's anything wrong. Good news is if the warning light's still going on, that means that you still have a sensitive heart towards the things of God and you need to listen and act on them. Don't leave here this morning without confessing it to God and turning from that sin today. Saying, Lord, I've been dealing with this. I've been denying it. I just want to ask you first and foremost to forgive me. And if I need to go to someone and ask their forgiveness, I want to ask them to do it. Get, get it done today. Get right with the Lord. Maybe there might be someone here you've never dealt with sin and guilt in your life and you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The good news is, 1 John 1, 9, the Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Uh, let me close by saying, in a broad sense, every one of us is guilty before God because the Scriptures teach us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why do we experience guilt? It's simple, because we're guilty. Because we've broken the commandments of God. And maybe you've come here this morning with the guilt that just eats away to you. You haven't been able to get away from it. The guilt is a, a, a symptom of a deeper problem. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to ask Him to come in and be your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sin. Otherwise, the guilt will just keep going on and on. You need to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I know I've broken your commandments. Thank you for dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. I put my life in your hands. I give my life to you. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you do that, if you're not saved and you did that this morning, you will be saved. God will take away the guilt. He'll take away that shame. He'll clear your conscience all because He paid the price for you upon that cross. Give your life to Him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time that we spent this morning in Your Word. We thank You, the Holy Spirit, for showing us perhaps areas in our lives where, Lord, we have a guilty conscience and we need to, to confess that to You and we need to turn from our sin. Perhaps, Lord, we've been in a place where we've been uh, feeling guilty over something you've already forgiven us for. And we need to let it go. And we need to accept that forgiveness just as you've said in your word as far as the east is from the west. You've put our sin from us. We need to keep it there as well and understand you've forgiven us. Lord, Lord maybe there's someone here that's never experienced the forgiveness of their sin. Whatever place we're at this morning, Lord, we all need to look to you to find that forgiveness, to find that hope, to find that strength that only comes in a right relationship with you. So do that work in our hearts, Lord, as we leave this place today, Lord, that we might honor you in every aspect of our lives, that we may walk out of here with a clear conscience, knowing, Lord, that days are evil, but you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to live godly lives pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.